1 Corinthians 6, Paul transitions from lawsuits in the church to immorality. We look to the reading of God's word, if you would join me in prayer. Blessed are you, O God, the Father of all mercy. You have elected us, you have called us, you have justified us. You have sanctified and glorified us through your Son, the living word. And may it please you today to take from the blessings of your word, which hang like thick crusters of grapes, and to feed us by your Spirit, who is working in us according to your promises. And this we would ask and pray through Christ our Redeemer. Amen. Beginning in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The word of the Lord. A church that thinks it is all that is being taken down one brick at a time by Paul. What they have built on is not on the foundation of Christ that he had put down for them. So far, he has taken them to task for divisions in the church, for boasting and bragging about how spiritual they think they were, for being saturated with worldly wisdom, for not doing anything inside the church with a man who is sleeping with his stepmom, but on the outside of the church, separating from and judging those who weren't a part of the church. He condemns them for tolerating lawsuits inside the church, defrauding one another. And he's going to go on to talk about specifically sexual immorality in the church and several other sins before them. Think about that. How would all of this look on their church webpage review? You see it, a reviewer saying, one star, because I can't go any lower. That's what's in front of them. And it's amazing when you consider that it was the Apostle Paul who was at the helm of starting the church. And we understand the difficulties. Changing sinful hearts is hard work, especially when you have to go against your culture to get there. These cultural sins make it even harder. In the mid-1800s, all the way up to World War II, if you were in Germany, Austria, or some of the other Central European countries, you would have seen socially prominent men walking around with scars on their face. It came from dueling with swords. They would let their opponent nick them in the face and in the body. And while certainly dangerous, it was considered a badge of honor and courage. Now, that's easy for us to see, is that's crazy. But it was a part of their culture that they were saturated with. Women considered these scars attractive and also as a sign of good marriage material. So important was this that there were some men who were afraid, who would cut themselves with razors or even pay a doctor to aesthetically cut them. Now, if you were to be found out with this, it was considered great cowardice. But such was the pressure. And we look at that and go, who would do something like that? 
That's weird. And yet, if you grew up there, Instagram would include base guard dueling hotties. It would be in the category of things that people would find to look at. That's the power of culture. We're no different. Say hello to the tattoo. Like a scar, another permanent reminder of a temporary feeling. Just a little different. But why mention this at all? Because every generation hits certain tough spots in their sanctification that are hard to see and even harder to go against. Now, we're going to touch on some of these this morning. But gaining an outside perspective is helpful when we're struggling to see on the inside. Being a new community based on the transforming grace of Jesus is always hard. But because we are a new cleansed community in Christ, our actions are to build, to encourage, to foster the body of Christ. Paul makes this transition then from lawsuits to sexuality, and this bridge is 9 to 11 to make the transition. Well, how does that work? Paul warns them about 10 representative sins that, like lawsuits, are sins against community. And then he encourages them in their new way of living in Christ with one another. So the warning, he starts out in verse 9. Do you not know that a righteous, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Who are the unrighteous? Specifically, those who were defrauding one another and taking one another to court. He's already spoke of that. Generally, those who engage in the ten behaviors that he lists here. Now, as we start to point out, it is true that churches who consider themselves more conservative bring in the focus on the sexual sins. Those who consider themselves maybe more progressive, they focus in on the more social sins. Paul does not let us do either one of these. Cultural issue number one. We are not letting... Secular agendas split, split us into the either sexual ethics or social justice. Hitting the drum on one of these and near silence on the other is not biblical. Treating certain sins as far worse and being crickets on the other is not biblical. So the immediate application, you fall to one side or the other. You've heard me say this a lot. On the donkey, we fall on one side or the other. Most here probably fall on the sexual ethics side. So, really try hard to fall off the other side for a while. Start talking about greed and unjust business practices and idolatry associated with these sins. Now, if you're already there, well, move to the other side. It's both and... Not either or. If your arm is tired from this hitting one drum, it's time to put it down and try hitting the other one for a while. Both and, not either or, in how we deal with the sins within the church. Notice then that Paul, he mentions this word inheritance twice. Verse 9 and verse 10. An inheritance is not something that is earned. He's not saying do the right thing so that you will inherit the kingdom. You inherit because of the relationship you have with the one who makes you a beneficiary. Because of Jesus, 
You are now sons and daughters of the kingdom. Your behavior is an outer marker of an inner new reality. How you use things like money and sex shows the new nature of a Christian. The old way of Corinthian culture is not acceptable for the new Christian community. Paul is not saying that anyone who struggles with these sins is out of the kingdom. Rather, he's saying those who are marked by this kind of habitual lifestyle ought to reflect if they're actually in the kingdom at all. He then lists ten different types of sins. It's not meant to be an exhaustive list. He he does this three times in the Corinthian letter. And in the ESV, they take two of them and make them into one category. So if you're counting the English, you'll only have nine. But there are ten that are listed. Four deal with sexual sin. There's idolatry, greed, a grasping after things, a drunkenness. And all these correspond to actual problems in the church. The immoral man in chapter 5. Lawsuits. Chapter 6. Prostitution. Chapter 6. Problems in marriage, chapter 7. Idolatry and eating, chapters 8 and 10. Drunkenness within the Lord's Supper, chapter 11. And even the offering that is supposed to be taken for all the the saints in need, chapter 16. Paul is dealing with real issues in the church. And then he goes on to say, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Besides sins against the Lord, these are all sins against the church, the community of faith. These sins destroy community. Being greedy, stealing, swindling others, all sins about money. Idolatry certainly is sin against worship, but if it's tied with sexual cult prostitution, that sort of thing, it's also a sexual sin. Abusive speech, that's an easy one to understand. Several of these do center on sexual relationships. Single people being immoral. Married people being immoral. And those engaged in homosexual practices. Now, the ESV takes two words and makes it into one. It says men who practice homosexuality. The term that the two that are used are likely refer to the active and the passive partner. And I mention this simply because there's an attempt to say that Paul is only condemning a certain kind of of homosexual practice. Now, the words taken together combined with his very clear teaching in Romans 1 and the universal Jewish condemnation in the first century of all homosexuality, it takes away the smoke and the mirrors to divide and conquer aspect of this. Some object to what Paul says, but he clearly says it. He says what he says. So now for cultural issue number two. What you do with your body sexually matters to God. First, let's look at the biblical rationale. Sex is for creating community through permanent relationships whose foundation is the building block of the family for for procreation. And like these other sins that destroy community, so too does sex outside of marriage. Putting my selfish desires above those others over the rest of my community. So... My pursuit of greed tears down others and in the end exploits them. My pursuit of sexual gratification tears down the fabric of a holy community that in the end will exploit them. 
Now, to be very clear, it's not just limited to exploitative behavior. Even as we're going to look and see next week with Pastor John, it's still sin, whether it's consensual or contractual. Why? Sex is never just physical. It's a oneness of more than just the body. Genesis 2 speaks of the, the two will become one flesh. And it's a oneness of faith, of commitment, of emotions, of relationship. God has made our physical union to reflect, yes, and to further that union of oneness in marriage between a man and a woman. Physically, they correspond to one another and not just in the areas that are seen. This moves beyond husband and wife and includes being a father and a mother in the raising of children. One of the great tragedies of single-parent homes is this very thing. When sin breaks that bond, it destroys what God intended for a great good in society. And no way in trying to do a dig on those who are single parents. It's a recognition that sin breaks that bond which was meant for great good. And it's difficult. To be physically one without these other considerations, that is an aberration of what God intended it for. Paul is expressing this elevated view of sexuality that the Bible teaches. It's elevated. It's high. So, the rationale. Now, the cultural problems facing us. Our current time is hostile to this view. We all know that. One author mentions that to his grandfather, who was a World War II vet, he said, if a man were to tell him, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, that phrase was nonsensical to his grandfather. Wouldn't have a clue what the guy was talking about. Use that phrase today, no one has trouble understanding it. That's where things have shifted. We now equate sexuality with identity to such a degree that it is normal for people to talk this way. Just as it was for 19th century Austria to consider letting someone poke you in the face with a fencing saber to be considered honorable. Now, if you took the Wayback Machine back to 1900 Vienna, imagine the conversation you'd have trying to tell someone that you thought that was foolish. Whoa, whoa, what do you mean? Dueling scars are not a symbol of bravery and courage? You know who says that? Cowards and dishonorable people say that. You see, the identity of bravery and honor was tied to something that seemed self-evident to them. And while they would look down on any man who cheated and paid a doctor to cut his face, they would completely understand why he would want to do it. And we would be like, I don't get either one of you. That's very strange to me. If we grew up in that time, we would struggle with seeing it differently. Cultures change constantly. And God's word comes in as challenges to them. There are people here, I know this to be true. People here who are on the fence on these issues. Some of you, too, have friends and family who struggle with their identities or who now simply assert that they see it the right way and if you don't agree with them, you're not loving. 
We, we live in this world this way. And what all that means to us, it's important for us to know the times in which we live. What was taken for granted in a generation ago is hotly challenged today. And this means there is a genuine perplexity and confusion. There is real suffering over these issues. And what has always been true is that the tone and the demeanor in how we speak on these issues is as important as the content in what we say. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. Moving ahead, it's to verse 32 of chapter 4, Ephesians. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's the, the tone, that's the demeanor that we're to have and how we speak of these issues. They're hard issues for many people. And if you uphold a biblical sexual ethic, you will be beat up by our culture over it. It is okay to take a beating for the Lord, but not for being a jerk. Notice too, how Paul repeatedly attaches present suffering to future glory. Future inheritance comes on the heels of our present tribulations. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 15, there he says, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, you received, brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering in order that we also may share in his glory. Present suffering, future glory. And this applies to our struggles of the flesh. I appreciate New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg, how he summarized the biblical position. I, I put that in your bulletin as well. He says, celibacy remains the biblically mandated alternative to heterosexual marriage for people of any orientation, unable to find a permanent partner of the opposite sex. We are called then to struggle, to persevere. This includes struggling in a singleness that we don't want. It includes struggling with broken and discombobulated desires. It includes struggles in marriage where physical intimacy is also broken for one reason or the other. It includes the struggle of not retaliating when others wrong you. The struggle of letting go of your rights. What Paul does that helps us is to step back from the immediate and to view this perspective of the end. To, to look at this on a larger scale. We, we see that in 2 Corinthians 4. There Paul says, he goes, Therefore we do not lose heart, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since, we, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Present struggles, future glory. That 
is a part of Paul's encouragement to us to view with something greater in mind. And he goes in in verse 11 with this encouragement. He says, says these types of sins, these habitual way of living life, he says, such were some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. His hope for the Corinthians is in the Lord who has saved them. You were once like this, but you're no longer like that. Why? Because of the grace and mercy of the Lord. And and notice how wonderfully Trinitarian is the nature of this hope. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of our God. Washed, sanctified, justified. Three verbs, all facets of the same reality. Washed, an allusion certainly to baptism, but means the cleansing of filth. The washing and renewal of regeneration. You were sanctified. You were set apart. You were made holy. You were justified. You now have right standing with God. This is now who you are. Letting go of a former way of life is hard. But we do not do it alone. We have been put into the body of Christ. We are new creatures in a new community. The focus is taking off of ourselves, off of our desires, our wants, And it's placed back upon the Lord. How we live reflects who we are in Him. We do not sin privately. All sin at some level includes others. Therefore, we will not speak abusively to anyone. We will not defraud others or set our lives on a trajectory of greed, accumulation, and exploitation. We will not sin against others with our bodies. We will choose to suffer wrong. We will choose to suffer by a prolonged warring against our flesh. Even when everyone in the culture around us says the right thing to do is to give in. Why? Why would we do this? Because we have an inheritance in Christ far beyond anything that we can imagine in this life. We follow a Savior who has gone before us, who is taking these sins upon Himself, who has enabled us by the gift of His Spirit to transform our former way of living in order that we can, on this side of glory, begin to reflect the wonder and the holiness and the joy of God. That that is what He's put before us. The struggle is real, to be sure. But the grace and the power of our Savior is far greater. That even when we stand against parts of our culture that push against us, that even cause an anger to well up within us to to want to lash back, we choose the way of our Savior, who when reviled did not revile in return who did not compromise, but who was able to maintain the holiness of God even with the inclusivity of reaching out to sinners who felt very comfortable in His presence because they knew He loved them even while He was uncompromising with His standards of holiness before them. And by His power, changes even the core of who we are 
sinners into righteous followers. The righteousness of Christ given to us so that we would not have to be trapped in these empty ways of life, but be able to walk in the newness that He alone provides with joy and expectation and hope of of what yet is to come for the struggles we still face, but a sure and certain hope of future glory even amidst the present suffering. Pray with me. Father, we indeed are so grateful that you have not left us in an empty way of life. But Father, that by your kindness and mercy, you found us while we were lost. You have brought us to your son. And Lord, we would ask that in the struggles that we all face, warring against our flesh, warring against Father desires to assert ourselves over others. We pray, Father, that you would continue to transform us, to change us. Lord, to give us a new and fresh zeal for the ways of life and flourishing that you alone provide through your son Jesus, in whose name we pray.